Hello, this is Priya Kalidas and welcome to my new podcast, I Hear You. In this series, I will be speaking to inspiring individuals about life, career, and we will be deep diving into the impact of culture on the choices they've made. On the I Hear You podcast this week, I am joined by a real trailblazer, an actress, writer, director, cultural producer, it's Sherelle Skeet. Hello, Sherelle. Welcome, welcome. Hello, Priya. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. You know, I was thinking about the first time we met and it was when you were playing Rose Granger Weasley in the original production of Harry Potter, the play, in the West End, uh, which mm-hmm. in itself is really epic. So well done, you. It was the Christmas party. It was the Christmas party. Yeah. And we, I don't know why we kind of like ended up connecting and we just, our energies kind of just drew to each other and we were like, oh my God. I think it was like a mutual appreciation. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. And also like, I think in those spaces as well, you really clock the black and brown people who are working and doing things. And it's like, okay, I see you. I see you too, you know? We know the challenges and obstacles we're up against. So I think it's really important to, especially in those, those type of environments where, yeah, it's a celebration of, of the work that we've done for that year, but also it's like an extra celebration that we're there. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. Just me and you, me and you are there. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Tell me what that was like getting the call um, when you were offered that part because it was you know we we all know that you know Harry Potter is an international brand that you know is it reaches out to such a huge audience and then they put together this play that was well is one of the biggest and amazing central locations in the West End you can't miss it if you go into Soho you will see that theatre the Palace Theatre I mean it's an incredible space literally looks like Hogwarts. It really does. Were you a Harry Potter fan? So I wasn't a big Harry Potter fan. I watched, I watched the films at Christmas. I had friends who were like Potterheads, like serious Potterheads. And yeah, so I, I wasn't, I wasn't really heavily invested in the story as such. I think I really enjoyed it for like the films mainly. Well, the part of fans going to come for me now, but like, obviously I have grown in my appreciation for the world now having kind of lived it for that time. And also it's kind of like, it's always with you. Yeah. So the process of kind of before I got the call was auditioning for the workshop. And I remember it was like, I think it was this unnamed project And I think my agent got the inkling that it was Harry Potter. So yeah, so you're auditioning and you're doing dancing with ones and, you know, it was quite vigorous. Um, And then, you know, we're reading the sides and reading the parts of the character and the character was kind of written as part kind of young Hermione Granger. And you're like, okay, but it's not Hermione Granger. Okay, cool. But kind of based off her kind of thing to give you a bit of a hint in terms of characterizing the, the this person that you're creating 
and yeah, so when I got the, when I got through and I got to do the workshop for me, the, the big thing was being able to collaborate. I'm a theater maker. I'm a storyteller first and foremost. And again, we, I wasn't weirdly, I wasn't quite sure what I was signing up for. Um, as much as you know, that you're signing up for Harry Potter, the play, what does that even mean? Do you know what I mean? Like we know that it's part of this big world, but also it's the first time that this show is going to be, well, first of all, this is the workshop. So I'm always the type of performer where I'm like, I will give in that moment. And then I will kind of have to walk away. Cause as you know, part of what we do as performers is we have to audition. We audition all the time. You give in that moment when you're doing your self tape, when you're doing your audition. And then the moment you walk through the door, you kind of have to let it go. You kind of have to move on to the next thing until, you know, okay, the job's mine until they tell me otherwise. But I kind of have to give that kind of, it's like a nomadic kind of thing of like invest, 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 and then move on. So I always try and do that. Also, it supports my mental health. So I remember doing the workshop. I just invested in the workshop, which was amazing because it was completely about theatre making. You know, I got to work with Noma Dumaswini. She got to play my mom, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to tell her, you know, the first time I ever saw her on stage, which was at Belgrade. And I remember just kind of freaking out. And she's just like, really? That was however many years ago. How old were you? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I was at college. And you come to the Belgrade in Coventry, you and Lenny James, and, you know, just proper gushing. And that was, it was that, that was the, the, the magic for me, being able to connect with people like Noma, being able to see the director's vision, being able to really figure out how are we going to be able to do these magic tricks um, in theatre, like getting to learn like basic magic. Because at this point at workshop level, you don't really know what it's going to be. You don't even really know because as an actor, they kind of tell you you're like the last to know, aren't you? So you know, our part of me was just, let me just take it for what it is in this moment. Getting the call that I got the part from the workshop was like, oh, okay. At the time I was living in Birmingham. So I was like, great, I'm moving back to London. Let's go on this roller coaster ride. Like I said, I I invest in that moment, but who knows what this is going to be? Because as we know within the business as well, there are so many shows that are deemed to be the success because of its connection to whatever franchise or this franchise. And some shows that are deemed to be successful, they can close in six months or three months and people have literally moved their families down. So for me, it was just about embracing and enjoying every step of the way. Great. I've got money to survive for the next 14 months because that's what they've signed up for. So they got to pay me. So I've got money for the next 14 months, that security, but also, you know, I can move out of my mom's house for the next 14 months. I keep it 100. That was, um, that was what it was. And then throughout the process, being in the show and like really seeing it grow, I was like, no, this is a brilliant, really, really special, special show. You know, I've seen everyone's performance grow, the design elements. And yeah, it was like, you know, I hope the, I hope people come and watch this because I would watch this. This is pretty cool. It's not something I would necessarily think I would watch, but I was like just the element of, of theater making and being able to tell such an epic story on stage. I was fascinated by that. And then it was like, when we opened then all of like the, the noise and obviously the casting and all of that, then that's part of it. But ultimately it was about 
the connection of people who I admire. I did see you in it and, um, and I loved it. And it was, as you said, visually incredible. But let's go back to, you mentioned growing up in Birmingham because you do hail from Birmingham. Um, and you grew up in a Jamaican and Vincentian household. So um, a, a wonderful kind of melting pot of cultures. What was that like for young Sherelle? Was there any defining moment that you experienced at home um, growing up that really kind of stayed with you into your adult life? There is something so powerful in whatever culture you come from, if, you know, your second generation, I think. I, I think it's probably more so in hindsight within my adult life, I can reflect back now and be like, wow, I come from such a powerful, resilient, um, rich cultural tradition that is actually very matriarchal. Sometimes on a Saturday night, going around to my auntie's and my granddad's house and they'd be playing soca and they're licketing, licketing on the, you know, the spoon the spoon or the fork on the glass and there's everyone's dancing and, you know, there's Sunday dinner and rum punch and, you know, the food that we, 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 we ate. Um, it's, you know, my granddad being present and picking me up from school and taking me ice skating or taking me swimming and falling asleep and, you know, telling me stories like old folk tales that he grew up singing and telling, telling, telling me stories about his time living and growing up in Jamaica. Um, it's, you know, my mom's hair salon and, you know, her having this space for, um, black women to come and take care of themselves, to heal themselves, to have a place of refuge for the community to kind of it was like one of the first stops some people would make when they, you know, brought a relative over and they were trying to find somewhere for them to live. It was all of that. I know that that has given me the powerful foundations and strength to be the person that I am, to know that even before I went to drama school, even before that I decided to make a career within storytelling, I come from a culture where it's everywhere, you know, it's probably, it's not studied in the same way, like you would go into a conservatoire, but it's in the way that, you know, people would come into the salons and share what happened, what stories happened in Jamaica and this happened. And, you know, I would sit there as a kid and laugh and, you know, find these people, these characters so funny. I really draw on, and yeah, I still draw on though that rich star and it's you know it's when I go into places like like I said drama school or going into spaces and knowing that wow I can yeah recite some Shakespeare I can you know do all of this incredible work and know that I am also connected to history that is based on community that is based on resilience and rebel spirit and I always whenever I feel I believe the delusion of me not being good enough or, you know, I really have to tap into that energy of, of, of resilience, of um, self-determination, of belief in one's ability, because I come from a set of people that they had to literally dream beyond what they saw to even 
make the decision to come to England to a place that they were asked to be here, but were not necessarily wanted here. Those, those are my family members. Those are my community members. And like, even before then. So yeah, it's, um, it's a real, it's a huge part of, of who I am. And, you know, having that dual identity, having a Caribbean, growing up in a Caribbean household, but then having a very British experience, which that, you know, that each generation it will be different for, but like realizing that similar, but also, also the similarities of my experience to my parents and grandparents' experiences, but also how things have shifted and changed, how language has changed. Yeah. So I always say that I come from, you know, inside my house, it was very Caribbean. And then when I stepped outside the door, I was bringing that world with me, but into a world that my likeness was not necessarily the default. Um, and even to this day, I have to remind people, I was like, didn't happen in my house. We did things a bit differently. Well, that didn't happen in my house. Yeah, we, we didn't do that. And again, that's that kind of, that celebration of difference of being like, well, it's because now I know it's because I come, I came from a Caribbean household, um, which I think also within my generation is, is becoming rarer because both my parents, my mum was raised in the Caribbean. She was born here, but raised in the Caribbean. My dad was born and raised in the Caribbean and came over. So I've kind of got that older generation, kind of old school um, upbringing that I think probably older people, probably in their 40, 50s even, have had that experience. I think there are less millennials that have had that experience, experience, I think, I think so. Because yeah. their parents have been born and bred here. Exactly. Mm. And it's a slight, it's slightly different. What was it that made you want to get into this industry to be a performer, to be a storyteller? You know what, when I, thank you for that question. I, I really enjoy answering that particular question because it means I get to talk about my first love, which is dance. Um, I actually got into acting through dance. I've, I didn't necessarily, I wasn't one of those people that was like, I know I'm going to be an actor. Like since the age of four, I didn't know that I actually decided I wanted to get into acting probably when I was in my late teens, early twenties. I thought I was going to be dancing for Missy Elliott. I was going to be dancing for Janet Jackson on her final world tour. (laughs) That, that was my dream. Like I wanted to be a commercial dancer and then I, I did that. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to go into commercial dance. And then I kind of that grew and then I wanted to actually be more in like a dance company and do like fusion. So Afrofusion contemporary. I thought I was going to go to Northern School of Contemporary Dance. That was on the cards. And then I realized that so I had a dance group in Birmingham and we very much did like dance routines to like sick tunes, incredible transitions, like think like diversity, but smaller, um, the dance. We were called CRC. Originally it was our names, Sherelle, Rochelle, Chantel, and all of our names rhyme. And then we decided to use it as creating real change because we basically got other young people within who we used to teach dance to. They, it, we, were, we, we were a group of three and then over the summer became a group of 30 um, because they were like, we want to continue dancing. We don't want to stop. So we were like, okay, I guess we're now a group of 30 as opposed to three. So yeah, from there, I then, uh, found out that I really enjoyed telling, telling stories through 
doing dance. And I was less so interested in kind of empty movement and more so about movement that was driving a narrative. And then someone said to me, oh, that's called physical theater. I was like, what is that? I don't know. I'm just doing what I enjoyed, uh, which was also going to the breaking convention and seeing hip hop theater founded by John Z D. And I was like, that just blew my mind. I got to see dance theater from Brazil, from France, And it was incredible. I was like, I didn't know dance could do this. I I kind of veered down that route and my movement completely changed. Um, And then someone then said to me, you know, have you thought about drama school? And I was like, well, no, not really. Someone like me from inner city Brom, we don't go to drama school. Um, And I remember um, at the time my mentor gave me a list of places to apply for. It was like, Guild Hall and RADA and Central School of Speech and Drama. And I remember just being like, oh, kind of going on the internet and hearing that Judy Dench went to Central. And I was like, but people like me don't go to places like that. I'll stick out like a sore thumb. I'm like, no, like I it took a while. So absolutely that self-belief had to kick in. Um, I eventually got some funding um, so I could get on the train and apply for basically a place to audition. First time round, I didn't get in. But what was great, which was important, was that I got to see the building and just being in the in the environment of a drama school, which was so alien to me. And I was like, wow, I want to come here. And that was obviously central. I wasn't applying for the right course for me, which was musical theatre. That's what I was applying for at the time. Because I was like, well, I sing, I dance, I act, I suppose. I want to do that. Um, but then it was when I went and did a workshop and it was very movement-based. I got to be a plastic bag. I got to be fire. And it was just a visceral response like, oh, I can just dance it out. Oh, that's great. That's acting. I didn't know that that was acting. And um, yeah, we. and then I saw how you could act through movement. I was like, wow, that's so cool. So the following year, I only put that down on my UCAS form. I didn't apply to any other drama schools. Um, I was like, if I don't get in, I'll just try and apply another year. And I got in. I was like, I think I can do this. Okay, I think I, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And then the kind of training wheels have kind of dropped off. And that's basically how I got into, I suppose, doing acting. But I've always done performance, um, whether it was performing, writing, or doing a bit of singing, or, you know, doing talent shows, or, you know, with a whole dance company. So I started off in Sudbury and then I moved to, then from Sudbury, I moved to South London in Deptford, which was across the road from the Albany Theatre. And then now, um, yeah, back in, I'm in Northwest. So, I mean, you mentioned earlier that actually acting was a really great way for you to then be out in the big wide world, make money and um, step away from the family household, so to speak, and, and have an opportunity, I guess, to, to become the person that you needed to become. How did your family react to your passion and, and then actually stepping into an industry that is, you know, it's not, it's not easy. And especially as you mentioned, for, for someone like yourself, uh, coming from working class background, also culturally where you come from, how did they respond to that? And how have they responded to that since? Has it changed? They have only ever wanted me to be happy. It's, I think for them, they still don't quite understand how it works. So they know that I will be, they'll be like, when are we seeing you? And I'm like, I'm in rehearsals. There's rehearsals and then there's a performance, so theatre, then 
okay, we'll come. If it's coming on a TV channel, it's like, when can we watch? But I think the process of like auditioning and all of that and the fact that you, you're continuously working on your craft. My mum gets it more. I think other members of my family less so. So I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm still always explaining. I hear a lot of people say that it's like an ongoing thing. So how does that equate to being able to pay your bills? <laughs> so it's so funny. A few people would say to me, I bet your parents are so proud. I was like, they're working class. They're just like, do you have a job? Can you support yourself? good <laughs> where you know I could be doing Shakespeare um but they will always remember my Hellman's mayonnaise advert yeah so for them they're just like are you are you happy are you able to support yourself what are you doing next so I'm really fortunate in that respect that I think you know Caribbean people we come from a uh, we Creole people so we're a, we're a melting pot of so many different backgrounds you know um, and I think because of that, it's it's less kind of, well, from, you know, my side of the family in terms of it's less so prescribed. It's more about doing the best you can with what you have and being being excellent at it, whatever it is, as opposed to, I know I've got friends who are West African and they're like, are you a doctor? Are you a lawyer? Are you an engineer? Are you going to go into business it's less so much about that and more and more and for for my family more about like support yourself make sure that you're happy but it's interesting also when it comes to your our careers they can be like that but when it comes to your personal life sometimes it feels like for a lot of people they have to prescribe to an ideal uh setup that their families can relate to or feel like that's what they expect of you have you because you've been on a on a journey personally outside of work how um how have you navigated that because when you have certain expectations that we all do from our families and from our parents and from community in particular especially when you come from a community with rich in culture it's not always easy um when you're sort of stepping outside of the box so to speak you stepped outside the box in so many ways in terms of, you know, the the things that you've done in your career and everything that you set out to do, um, but also personally with your relationships. How have you navigated that? Because there's lots of people out there, lots of young people who who are really struggling with that. I think the first thing was for me to be okay with myself. And I say that as in you know, the term kind of coming out, I kind of, it makes me roll my eyes a little bit because I'm just like, actually, I like the term coming in. I'm allowing people to come in to get to know this new chapter that I'm in. I'm allowing you to be part of that, to be part of my life in that respect. Everybody else, you'll catch up. Maybe you won't. And that's okay as well. So the first, the first thing was kind of sitting and processing um, how I felt about myself and my life and how I was living it. And if that was making me happy. Um, and part of that process, another part of my, I suppose, I think, what was the word you used Priya in terms of like stepping outside of what the cultural norm is. So I grew up pretty Christian, I suppose, like Christianity was the main religion in our household, but I'm now a practicing Nichiren Buddhist. 
Um, so that was like the first, <laughs> the first level of really stepping into, and you know, your whole life is leading you up to that point, of course, but then having the courage to share that with my parents and inviting them to be part of that ceremony when basically you have a Buddhist baptism, it's you receive your gahanzan, which is what we chant in front of. And just saying, you know, this is, this thing makes me happy. This practice makes me happy and is, you know, I've, I've made this dedication to my happiness and the people around me and I will, it's a practice, not a perfect. So I'm going to make mistakes, but I'm dedicated to this thing for my life. And I hope that you will be part of that. And they came, they had questions and it was challenging and it took a lot of courage. Um, and then the next thing was kind of then allowing, bringing them into my world with my partner. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's an ongoing journey. It has its challenges. It has its obstacles. I think I'm very, very fortunate. Like the practice for me has really been my tool to really check in with myself and to always connect to the truth of who I am, to really ground myself, to even know that I am an artist. I make art and tell stories, but that is also not all that I am that I have this whole full life that is expansive and is continuing to expand and I'm changing and shifting and growing and I'm bringing people with me along the journey and I'm wanting their happiness as well. So yeah, it's, it's part of that is also the pain that comes with, with, with challenges and life and like having to have the courage with myself, really acknowledging and really questioning where I seek my validation because I realized a lot of the time I seeked my validation outside of myself and that was what was causing me suffering. So I had to ask myself, like, if I share this part of myself with these people and they say, that's not for me, how am I going to receive that? Is that going to shut me down and make me not be who I am? How is that going to impact me? I had to do all of this internal work on myself and not solely put it on the people around me to validate who I am because people are going to be mad. People are going to be mad whether I'm doing something outside of what they deem as being normal or, or, um, outside of something that challenges their own perspective of their own life, you know, cause like, how dare you live a life like that? Why, why would you do that? That kind of, that everyone take, some people take it personally. I think for me, it was like knowing that regardless of whatever outcome, whether people were going to be happy for me, whether people um, were going to reject me, that I would be okay with me. That's where I have to talk about my Buddhist practice because that was knowing that allowing, regardless of what the outcomes were going to be when, and, and that's ongoing Priya. I think being part of the LGBTQ plus community is that you're constantly faced with, first of all, safety. You've got to think about, and this is something that me and my partner speak about, you know, in terms of, is it safe for us to be out, I suppose, as, as a couple in the way that we are, in the way that we live our lives here in London, when we go to different parts of the world, you know, is it okay where we have to pick and choose where we go on holiday to make sure that we can be our authentic selves and don't feel like we have to shrink ourselves, you know? So it's, it's like an ongoing journey, you know, talking to family and cause there's one thing like being in your own bubble of the arts and, you know, everyone's so accepting and, and, um, open to people. Um, but when you, you know, 
the reality is people are going to be homophobic. People are going to have their opinions and expectations of you regardless. Like people can stay mad, but where do I find my own source of resilience and strength? I find that in community. I find that in my practice. I found it also in my partner. I found it but most importantly, to really find it in me and finding ways to replenish that. And if you're not, if if you're not at a place yet to to do that, then I would say take your time. You don't like the way I see it is when people are like, oh my gosh, how come you didn't tell me? Was it any of your business? Were you part of my life? Did I have these conversations with you? Maybe not. Maybe you're meant to know this other part of my journey, and that's okay. I um you and I actually reconnected through your partner um who so I also know and is she is amazing but you've both talking of community you've actually created a community for uh black female creatives called Blacktress why was that important for you I basically created something that I needed at the time and continue to like I said I grew up in a hair salon my mom had a salon for 25 years and I witnessed how um, having spaces like that was literally a a lifeline for so many women. With Blattress, it actually came out of, I was in a show called Amen Corner at the National Theatre and I had the wonderful benefit of being surrounded by these incredible incredible powerhouse women like Marianne Jean-Baptiste and Cecilia Noble and Angela Winter and Jackie Boatswain, like incredible powerhouse women. Sharon D. Clark, how can I forget her? Like so many who literally took me under their wing and were just like, how are you? Asking me questions. What are you doing with this? Remember just literally every day dripping their goodness of affirmations and willing me as like the next generation. And I really felt that and it filled me up. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And there's something about, I think there is so much power and strength in intergenerational dialogues. So I realized as the youngest female member in the company, and these are women that I've watched growing up who I could only dream of even meeting, never mind working in the same company. Um, And I was like, okay, so there's something about access here and there's something about being able to actually have dialogue with these women who some of my experience is they're still experiencing. So I'm like, okay, sure. And one of the things that was happening was that a lot of people like friends were saying, oh, I just feel like, you know, I'm the only one I get this job. And then I'm the only one in the company. I'm the only black woman in the company. And then when these things come up, I'm putting my hand up to speak about it and no one else gets it. No one else, no no one's there to back the case. So I don't say anything or I feel as though I can't, you know, there was just this real sense of like low confidence, low self-esteem, real sense of isolation. And like I said, I come from a migrant background where the first place you go is you land in the hair salon. We're going to find you somewhere to sleep. We're going to see if we can get you a job. We're going to, you know, everyone rallies around these people who have just landed and they're strangers, but they're family. And that was what I wanted to recreate because I really saw the similarities that I'd grown up with in that company of these women taking me under their wing and being like, here, take this, take my number, WhatsApp me, send me a message if you need this, give me a phone call if you need this. Of course, you know, turning up on on the theatre again and bumping into Sharon and being like, yeah, right, baby, them looking after you. And well, that was all I needed in the corridor to be like, 
I can walk a bit taller now. I'm not on my own. My chin is up, my chest is out because I know that Sharon's got my back and she's in the Olivier and I'm in the Dorfman, but you know, I, I can go into her dressing room. And at points I literally did say, actually, I'm freaking out. Can, can we talk about something? And she's like, of course. So there was something in that spiritually. I was like, what is that? How can we create that? And it's literally bringing people together. Um, so we had our first dinner, uh, which was at a, a, a Caribbean food restaurant on Wardour street. And we invited about 20 people, uh, black women of different generations, some people who had just started out, who were still in drama school, um, some people who have literally been walking the boards for 30, 20 years, who haven't really been recognised properly within the industry. But I wanted them to be celebrated by these other young people and saying, we see you. The same way I, I'm like, even though you haven't got your BAFTA yet, you're, cause you're on your way or, and that's not even to say that that is, that is not necessarily, that isn't the pinnacle, but it's about saying that as a community, we see you. And that was really important that they needed that and that the young people also needed their knowledge. So it's this kind of mutual beneficial thing of like having these intergenerational conversations of like, what's happening now, what's happening, what's happened in the past and how do we work towards a better future together? So that's ultimately where Blatchers came from. So from that, we've, we've produced a season of work at Seven Dials Theatre. At the time, it was the Actor Centre in 2018. We've had workshops um, run there at Seven Dials as well. We have meetups. We've had collaborations with all kinds of theatres, including the National Theatre, where we have um, brought elders and had volunteers to go out into the community. And we've had like almost 100 elders um, to sit down and watch Small Island and have their portraits taken. That was called the Sage Club. We've done fundraisers and screenings of films. Um, we've done some fundraising for Women's Refuge and also um, the Sickle Cell Society. So it's about being an artist and more than that. It's like, how do we, from a from a, from, from a standpoint, from a humanist standpoint, how do we take care of the human in order to support the artist? And I think that a lot of the time, you know, when we're looking at women's voices, black women's voices are not always there a lot of the time on the front line fighting for things, but not necessarily given the space to replenish and recuperate. A lot of the time we're holding people up and supporting our men. Um, but a lot of the time we don't necessarily get the space to pour back into ourselves and to hold space for ourselves. So, um, we've been running it since 2000 and yeah, 2017. That's amazing. Sherelle, if you came face to face with 12 year old Sherelle, what would you say to her? I would say, do you boo? Don't pay anyone any mind. You continue continue on your journey. Don't doubt yourself. I wouldn't change anything, you know, but I would just encourage that 12 year old to not doubt herself, to stick to her guns, see it through. I would probably tell her you're probably dyslexic. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Whatever that means at 12. And she'll definitely be okay because you know what I would say to her, you're going to be a trailblazer and you are a trailblazer, Mm. Sherelle. Thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your thoughts. Um, You are a real inspiration and I really appreciate you taking time out to talk to me here on I Hear You. Thank you, Priya. 
Massive thank you to Sherelski for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for listening to I Hear You, the podcast hosted by me, Priya Galidas. Keep listening for more episodes and don't forget to follow and subscribe. Tell all your friends, let everybody know. Massive thank you also to Pineapple Audio Production for producing the series and I will see you next week. 